Ryan Cooper is a first-time on our campus. Pastor Jesse Randolph is from Ingham Hill Community Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, spent a lot of years in California and also a lot of years as an attorney, a lawyer, right? But uh, he is an excellent Bible teacher, and we were blessed to have him this morning. Please welcome Jesse Randolph. Thank you, Gordon, and it's good to be with you all. Uh, as Gordon said, I am a, a new Nebraskan, so it's quite an honor to be here this morning with you at Nebraska Christian. My family and I just moved here from Southern California in May. I have five kids. My oldest is actually the age of some of you. I'm 16, all the way down to almost three. So I know this age, but we're not here to talk about me and my family and my kids were here to talk about the Word of God. And I understand that you are all in the Gospel of Mark this year, which is a, a fascinating gospel. A, a, it's an amazing work of Scripture. It's amazing how that book moves so quickly as you're being taken from scene to scene in the life of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the task before me this morning is to take you through uh, Mark chapter 2. I hope I got this right. Verses 1 through 12. That's what I prepared. We're going to go through Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to start with a, a question uh, to put before you. It's rhetorical. You don't need to raise your hand when I ask this question. And the question is this What makes Christianity distinct? Uh, what makes Christianity different? Uh, what is at the heart of the, the, the claims of Christianity? Or the claims of Christianity? Uh, is it social acceptance in, in the place that we call the church? You know, having all our friends at church and eating all the cookies and punch so they can provide us at church and playing in the circle at Awana at church. Is that what Christianity is all about? Uh, is Christianity all about moral advancement, uh, making the world a better place, or ourselves? reforming ourselves, becoming better people, becoming better world citizens. But Christianity about being persuaded that God exists. Uh, is Christianity about persuading other people that God exists? Uh, is Christianity about wearing cross necklaces or having Christian-themed t-shirts or having Christian tattoos, the cross on the left arm or the right bicep? Uh, Christianity a fad, or a trend, or a movement? The answer is no. To all of those questions, the answer is no. Uh, but at the core of Christianity is the offer of forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ. That, that is the core of Christianity. The offer of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Now the teaching of Scripture is clear. Uh, we know from Scripture that God is holy, God is just, God is righteous, uh, God is light, 1 John 1, 5 says, and in Him there is no darkness at all. He is absolutely holy and righteous and just and unchangeably so. Uh, we also know from Scripture that uh, though God is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and perfectly 
us that we, mankind, are, are sinful. Uh, we are depraved. Uh, we're, we're wretched. We fall short in so many ways of the glory of God and the standards that God has set out for us in, in his creation. Uh, we also know from Scripture that forgiveness of sin is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Uh, forgiveness of sin is not found in, in better moral behavior. Uh, forgiveness of sin is not found in cleaning up the outside and, and just becoming a better person or be a, be a better version of the person we once were. Uh, forgiveness of sin is not found in the, the countless belief systems that are found around the world, both historically and in the present day. Forgiveness of sin is found exclusively in the person the work of Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 1 7, in him, meaning in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Or 1 Peter 2 24, he himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christianity is about forgiveness, uh, forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sin that we've committed against the holy God. And again, forgiveness that's offered only through trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I bring all that up to set up today's text because today's text is about forgiveness. And we're going to be, as I mentioned in Mark chapter 2, I invite you, if you're not already there, to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, and to sort of set the stage for what I hope to get through in these next, you know, few minutes, uh, this is a scheme, and when we're going through narratives, there are various parties and players involved, uh, there, there are actions taking place, and reactions taking place, and this scene is no different. Uh, here we're going to see it in verses 1 through 4, a curious crowd. Uh, in verse 5, we're going to see a forgiven sinner. Uh, in verses 6 and 7, we're going to see a hostile sect. Uh, in verses 8 through 11, we're going to see a reasoned response. And in verse 12, lastly, we're going to see an awestruck assembly. I'll work through those. I'll mention those as I go through each of those sections as we work through our passage. Let's start by reading verses 1 through 4. Chapter 2 of Mark, verses 1 through 4. God's word reads, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. I'm certain this is a familiar text to many of you who have been raised in the church and heard the word of God taught to you at various phases, but just to set some context for those who, maybe this is a newer passage to you, uh, going back to Mark chapter 1, you can sort of track with me, flip back a page to Mark chapter 1, to set some of the scene for where, where we are in Mark 2, uh, we've seen Jesus baptized in the Jordan in Mark 1, 9. Uh, we've seen him gathering his disciples from Galilee 
from Mark 1, 14 and, and following, uh, we see Jesus going to Capernaum for the first time in Mark 1, 21. Uh, we see that he teaches with authority in, in 1, 22. He's casting out unclean spirits in 1, 23 through 25. Uh, he heals Peter's mother-in-law uh, in 1, 29 through 31. Uh, he heals many more and casts out demons in 134. He cleanses a leper in 140 through 42. But what Jesus came to do, and he identifies this, this way, is he came to preach. Look at Mark 135. Mark 135. Some of this background is important. It says, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon, that's Peter, and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came to do. And what is it that he came to preach? Uh, was it a feel-good message of, again, cleaning up the outside? Was it a, a message of personal reformation? No, he came to preach the gospel. Mark 1, 14, you can go back to Mark 1, 14. Again, you see that after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus came to preach. He came to proclaim the gospel. Well, he did proclaim and preach the gospel, but we also know he did a lot of other things, like I just mentioned, healing and miracles and, and cleansing of lepers and the like. And what that did is that drew a crowd, as things like that and events like that tend to do. So we see in Mark 1, 45, at the very, uh, in, in the middle of that passage, it says that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. Uh, he had become a celebrity, you could say. People really knew who this guy was. They heard all the stories. They gathered to find him, and, and they wanted to see him do something interesting. Getting back to our text, we see that Jesus has, back to Mark 2, verse 1, he's returned back to Capernaum. And it says he was at home. Uh, during this time in Capernaum. That would have been a home likely of, of Simon Peter in Capernaum. And it says in verse 2, as he's in this home, that many were gathered together. And that's really an understatement, to say that, that, that many were, were gathered together. Uh, what really is being communicated here is that this place was absolutely packed. Uh, and the text here is, not saying that the people came to hear the gospel preached, so that is what Jesus came to proclaim. They were here because they heard all the stories. They, they, they heard about all the miracles. Uh, this was a, a curious group of onlookers, the, the looky-loos, the people that in our day stopped on the side of the freeway to see what happened on the side of the road. Uh, there was something interesting happening in this house in Capernaum, and they wanted to see what was happening. They wanted to figure out what, what all the ruckus was about. Uh, a crowd that was drawn by the miraculous. Uh, not only were they gathered together, though, verse 2 tells us that there was no longer room, not even near the door. Uh, meaning this was a real fire hazard. Uh, these, these are people that are, are packed in so tight, it'd be like if this room were packed so full that nobody could get out those double doors or any other doors 
we would we were all packed in like sardines with, with no place to go. And with that many people in his uh, within the, his radius, it says at the end of verse two, he was speaking the word to them. So they were there for the, the miracles. They were there to see the scene. They were there to see what would happen and then the next cool thing that was going to happen. But he was there again to speak the word, to, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news of salvation that he had been sent to preach. Now, according to, to Luke's account, there's a, a cross-reference here in Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees would have been, there would, there would have been some Pharisees in this room at this time that were there just taking notes, surely angered, incensed by the message that Jesus was proclaiming. Now, the Pharisees weren't there not only to see him perform miracles, they were there to hear what he had to say and, and try to tie him in knots, as we know from other accounts, about what it is he was saying. Now we get down to verse 3, and it says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Could have been a paraplegic, could have been a quadriplegic. He clearly had limited, if not uh, lacking, use of, of various limbs. And then it says, being unable, and in verse 4 now, to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. So because of the crowd, it says, that's why they had to remove the roof. Uh, this door was jammed, again, because of this crowd. Uh, in, in the cross-reference, in the parallel, in Luke 5, 17 through 19, it says, they tried. They were trying to get this paralytic through the door, not through the roof, but it was so packed to the gills that, they, that it was uh, impossible. And back in these days, what this would have been, it would have been like a, like a one-story uh, house with a, with a sort of a great meeting room in the middle where Jesus would have been teaching. And uh, there would have been a flat roof and a kind of exterior stairwell to get onto the roof. And they would have tried to get in that door at first, but then they would have taken them up the ladder. This would have been some sort of thatched roof with, you know, twigs and branches and mud and all kinds of things that, that, that created the roof and kept rain and the elements out of the room. And can you just imagine, you know, Jesus is standing in, in, in something like this where he's proclaiming to people, and all of a sudden the dirt and the mud and the branches and the sticks are all falling on people, and suddenly a little hole pops up, you know, because people are digging through the roof to get this guy through his pallet. And can you imagine a more distracting scene than that? Can you imagine somebody trying to just repelling into the auditorium this morning as, as I'm teaching? It would have been quite the distracting scene, but that's exactly... Uh, what we have recorded here. Uh, the, and, and what it really indicates is the sheer determination that this group had to get their friend into Jesus to have him heal as he had been healing in other places. So that's verses 1 through 4. And, that, and I, I mentioned the headings earlier. That was in the curious crowd. The, the curious group of onlookers gathered in that meeting place now being, having their teaching from Jesus interrupted as this man with these four other people carrying his pallet is now descending through the roof of this place. Now we get to verse 5, and the heading for verse 5 is a forgiven sinner. So we have the curious crowd, verses 1 through 4, now we have the forgiven sinner. Now we have no record here of any uh, interruption in what Jesus was teaching. Uh, we have no record of Jesus 
you know, altering his talk as the light comes through the ceiling and as the man descends. Uh, we have no uh, record of the people saying, oh, excuse me, I'm so sorry for distracting you, and as they drop down into the, to, to the great room of this house. It's not given to us what was actually happening in terms of commotion. All that happens is recorded here in verse 5. It says, and Jesus, seeing their faith. That's an interesting statement, uh, an interesting phrase, because you can't really see faith. Faith is something in the, in the heart. It really is saying, recognizing their faith. And, and there is a plural statement. He's not only referring to Jesus seeing his faith, meaning the man on the on the, uh, the pallet, but he sees their faith. Now, what kind of faith is being referred to there when it says Jesus seeing their faith? Well, in the case of the, the, the four men who would have been holding the pallet or carrying the pallet and, and dropping their friend through the roof of this place, uh, he saw the type of faith that recognized his healing abilities. Um, in other words, those four men carrying the pallet, the kind of faith they had was the faith in his ability to heal. Uh, not necessarily saving faith. We don't have record of that. This was faith that Jesus could do what they thought he could do by healing this man. This is the kind of faith that you and I have when we go to the hospital and believe that the doctor is not going to, to wipe us out. Uh, that He actually does have medical training and knows what he's doing. And when he stitches us up, he's not going to drop an instrument or a test cavity before he, before he sends us home. Uh, this is the kind of faith that when we go to a restaurant, they cook the meat all the way through so we don't get E. coli. Uh, this is the kind of faith that gets on an airplane and trusts that the pilot that day is in fact a pilot and is not intoxicated and is awake and is going to land the plane wherever it is that you're supposed to go that day. That's the kind of faith that these four individuals carrying a pallet have believing that Jesus could do what they thought he could do, namely, heal their friend. But then he narrows his focus in verse 5 on the paralytic at the end of that, that verse, where he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's not just healing. That is salvation. That, that isn't just healing, that's salvation. But now, the, the paralytic, he wanted healing. Sure, who wouldn't? But this is beyond uh, uh, seeking healing. This is about a man who wanted forgiveness. And, and, and Jesus knew it. And just like that, this paralytic went from condemned to forgiven, uh, from filthy to washed, from guilty to pardoned. With those words, son, your sins are forgiven. But then we get to the next section of our text, and this is our third heading in verses 6 and 7. Now we see the hostile sect. A hostile sect. Because mixed in with that crowd, with the curious, with the seekers, with the disciples, with the paralytic, with the friends that were landing, lowering his pallet through the roof, were scribes. Jewish scribes who were a subset of the Pharisees. Uh, these were the theologians of the day, uh, the Jewish the scholastics of the day, uh, the ones who were charged with interpreting the Torah, the, the, the Jewish laws and, and customs, and, and decided for everyone in that community how they could and how they would live. And, and 
they were very much legalistic. And I'm sure you've heard some teaching on that. They, they were the ones who went beyond what Moses' law declared and laid burdens on men that were really impossible to follow. And here they are now, listening to Jesus speak, watching him tell this paralytic that his sins are forgiven, and they had absolutely no category for that. Um, they had been trained to understand Deuteronomy 6, 4, that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now, they had no concept for there being two persons in the Godhead, let alone three. Uh, they had no concept for what we now know in our day uh, as the Trinity or the, the triunity of God. So for someone to stand up and say he was God or that to act as though he was God, to forgive sins like he was God, for them that would have been absolutely blasphemous. And so they expressed their outrage in verses 6 and 7. Because but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And in their way of thinking, they're actually right. Uh, because in their way of thinking, there was only one God, Yahweh. And, and only that one God was the only God who could forgive sins. So in their mind, Jesus either... I mean, they really didn't have a category for it, but Jesus either truly is God, or he is, as they thought him to be, a blasphemer. A one who said he was God, but he wasn't. One who accepted or, or put on the mantle of, of godness or, or the Godhead when he wasn't. And blasphemy under the old system, the, the Levitical system, was a capital offense. If you were found guilty of blasphemy, you would be killed. This, this takes us back to the old statement from C.S. Lewis that, that Christ's claims either show that he is Lord or that he was a liar. And, and right at the heart of this, this scene, we see that. That there is no middle ground. It's absolutely black and white. He is either Lord, God, who he was claiming to be, or he was, like the Pharisees thought he was, a liar. Did you catch that important detail, though, in, in, in verse 6? That they were not verbally articulating their concerns about what Jesus claimed to be. It says that they were reasoning in their hearts. Uh, Jesus didn't hear them make these statements about him and his so-called blasphemy, but he did and he could read their minds. That, that confirms what John 20, uh, 2.25 says, which is that he knew what was in the heart of man. Now we get to our next section. That's a reasoned response. And that's verses 8 through 11. A reasoned response. So the scribes are thinking, and again, in their hearts, they're not verbally articulating this, we've got him. He's committed blasphemy. He's, he's equated himself with God by claiming that he can forgive the sins of man. He's making himself equal with God, and what that means is the death penalty is on the horizon for this guy. Finally, we can be done with him. Finally, we can get him out of our midst. He has hung himself, you could say. And look what Jesus says in verse 8. It says, immediately Jesus, aware of his spirit, they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, 
Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? You got to stop right there. Again, Jesus is reading what's on the heart. He's reading their minds. And right away, because he has done so, because he's been able to penetrate what's going on in their heart, that alone confirms that he is God. That alone settles the question of whether he is a liar and a blasphemer, or whether his claim to be God is in fact true. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord looks on the heart. That's in the context of, of, of David, right? Uh, Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Only God, here's the nation point, knows what's in the heart of man. Well, Jesus, by seeing what was in the heart of these men, confirmed that he is God. But it, it continues in verses 9 through 11. Now he starts, this is, the, real, this is really that reasoned response. He says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Do you see what he's getting at here? On, on the surface, it, it might sound easier to say, well, well, just get up, pick up your towel, and walk. That sounds like an easier thing to do and to say than it does to actually say your sins are forgiven. But what Christ is saying here in context, and what he's getting at here in context, has to do with, with what is verifiable, uh, what is provable. Uh, is it easier to say and verifiably prove, that's the key, that one's sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say and verifiably prove, get up as a quadra or paraplegic, pick up your towel and walk? Though it actually doesn't sound right to our, our, our human ways of thinking, it's actually easier to say whether you have the power to do so or not, your sins are forgiven. That's actually easier to say and, and, and say to somebody because no one can prove or disprove once you've said that, that their sins were or were not, in fact, forgiven. You can just say it. You can walk away. They can think their sins are forgiven, but you don't know. You just said the word. No one can challenge your assertion. However, if you tell, based on some so-called authority you have as God, a quadriplegic or a paraplegic to get up and walk, one of two things will happen. Either they won't be able to get up and walk, and they'll still be there on, on their pallet, meaning and proving that you're a blasphemer and not, in fact, God, or they will get up and walk, showing, in Jesus' case, that he truly was God, and that his claims to be God were, in fact, valid and, and true. And as verse 10 says, as God, that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Uh, that he has the power over the temporary effects of sin, as in the, the physical restrictions and even the illnesses that are brought on by the curse of sin on the world, but that he also has power over the eternal reality of sin, and that he can forgive sin and grant sinners like you and me 
eternal life. Oh, I need to wrap. So we'll get to our last heading, and this is the awestruck assembly. So we've seen in verses 9 through 10 that Jesus uh, says he has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And then in verse 12, we see the awestruck assembly. It says, and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out to the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, I need to tell you that there's a parallel reference to this scene in Matthew chapter 9, verse 8. And it has very similar language, but it adds this, little, this additional detail where it says, uh, when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck, they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. To men. And the emphasis there is on men. So that, that last phrase is critical. Because what that Matthew um, passage in, in helping us understand Mark explains is that though this crowd had seen Jesus heal, and, and though this crowd had seen him read minds, and though they had seen him forgive sins, he was still, to many in that crowd, still only a man, a mere man, a, a faith healer, a, a sideshow act, a, a spectacle, a magician, uh, somebody who could see at the county fair who would impress you, but that was it. But the acts that Jesus had performed, uh, the healing he had given, the miracles he had displayed, the forgiveness he had granted, it all had a greater purpose which was to demonstrate that he is God, that he has the authority to forgive sins, and that indeed, as we said at the beginning, forgiveness is found only in his name. I'm going to close with a question, because there can be crowds all over the place, whether in Capernaum 2,000 years ago or in Central City in the year 2022. And the question is, have you sought forgiveness for your sins from the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, have you acknowledged him not only as a, a man, a, a healer, a, a, an all-powerful divine worker of sorts? Have you acknowledged not only that, but have you acknowledged that he is the God-man? Uh, that he is the, 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 the way to a right relationship with the Holy God? That, that you are, as I am, a sinner who falls short of the standards of God. That, that you cannot clean yourself up, you can't work your way, you can't get to the place where you could ever be polished enough on the outside to earn favor with the Holy God. That only in trusting, through, trusting Christ can you have that forgiveness. If you haven't reached that place, my, my call on you, my challenge to you, my plea to you is that you would beg God for forgiveness for your sins, that you would trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, that you would realize this is not about me or what I've done, it's all about what he's accomplished on the cross, and in so doing, be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word, its clarity, its power, its purpose, and ask that you would do a work through it with this group of students here at the school. If there are any here who do not know you, I pray that today is the day.
who grants eternal life and be saved. And for those who do know you, I pray this would be a reminder of the great and mighty God we serve, who is unchanging, who is eternal, who is all-powerful, and that this school day and the rest of this school year would bring you much glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Pastor Randolph. We appreciate that. Uh, Brandon, 